Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, an interview with Enala Cooper. In her new book, Ma Rule, Cooper explores the personal impact that events in Australia's colonial history have had on herself, her family, and the rights of Indigenous Australians throughout her life. She looks at what reconciliation and truth-telling look like, and how we, as a nation, find justice for Indigenous people. Adala Cooper was interviewed at Readings Carlton by Jonathan Green. Here's their conversation. Thank you for turning up on a, on a, on a chilly evening, um, and I hope there'll be some, some warming thoughts in our conversation tonight. I'd also like to acknowledge the fact that we are on Wurundjeri land and make that same observation that this land is, is unceded and was appropriated in various ways through acts of deceit and violence, in part. And we say that so often, and I'm always left at the end of saying that with a sense of, yes, but what follows that? What do those sentiments earnestly expressed by a white person in this country, what, what do they then mean in consequence? What do they mean in action? And that's, I think, going to be part of our conversation tonight. Uh, Anala Cooper is the author. Yes, indeed. <laughs> How good's that? And sadly, that's all we have time for. <laughs> Uh, Anala is a Yaru woman. Uh, she also has German and Irish heritage, um, uh, a model of the intricacies of this place. Uh, she's an activist, a human rights lawyer, academic, now author, uh, director of Marabark, the, the Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development at the University of Melbourne. And here is the tome. Now, some of you might think that you are, in fact, here for conversation and to enjoy you know, thoughts this evening. Wrong. You are here as part of a retail process. <laughs> All right. The thing you must do is secure a copy of this book before departing. Uh, the doors have now been locked. <laughs> and, and you will be richly rewarded for that decision, can I say. It, it is a beautifully, a beautifully turned work. It, as I was saying to Anala before, it, it moves exquisitely between the, sort of the close-up and the, the long view and the thoughts it expresses, the the propositions it puts into the conversation are very pertinent right now at the stage that we find ourselves in this place. Um, to get us going, Anala would like to read. She has a, 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 a taste for you of the book that you will shortly purchase and read for yourself. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks everyone for being here. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Readings, for hosting. And I was born on Wurundjeri country, so I pay my respects to their people and their elders and ancestors. Okay, I'll read a little bit and then Jonathan and I'll have a bit of a yarn. We will. All right. Towards the end of 1991, the Song Treaty by Yofi Yindi was everywhere, coinciding with what would be the end of the Hawke government. 30 years later, we still have no treaties, but some Australian jurisdictions are progressing with the process, including Victoria where a Treaty Advancement Commission was set up in 2018, which in turn the following year established the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Early in 2022, the Assembly held the Treaty Day Out on Yorta Yorta Country in Shepparton. 
at which Yothi Yindi performed an electrifying version of their renowned song. Everyone sang along, everyone knew all the words, everyone danced as we once again demanded, Treaty Now. 30 years we've been singing this song and I don't think we can say we've progressed the way we thought we would back in 1998. It's not for lack of trying though. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have never stopped putting in the work. The song, however, reminds us of the many barriers, including all those talking politicians. I was fortunate in 1993 to accompany Dad to Geneva for a meeting of the Working Group on Indigenous Populations, later replaced by the Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, of which he was a member. It was my first international flight, and due to Dad and I departing from different cities, I was an unaccompanied minor, with a string of enthusiastic flight attendants to help me during the long haul from Melbourne to Bangkok and Zurich and eventually Geneva. The working group was beginning to draft what would become the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And it was an eye-opening and culturally nurturing experience for me, being surrounded by Indigenous peoples from across the world who were so like me, yet so different. The global connection I've felt in international conference rooms since shows me that there is an undeniable spirit and link that Indigenous peoples have despite geographic or political boundaries. Observing Dad and his international colleagues collectively contribute to the UN DRIP, an instrument of social justice and change, also helped me learn how I too have responsibilities as a change maker. It reinforced what Dad had already told us kids, that we were experts in our rights due to their absence. This was one of the many significant events that shaped my identity in the early 1990s. And I will never forget driving through the streets of Geneva one balmy evening in our hire car, windows down, with Treaty blaring through the stereo. When I said that song was everywhere at the time, you can bet it was because of blackfellas with cassette tapes in hand. <laughs> Thank you. Your dad in that, of course, Mick Dodson, a, a, a great activist, a man of tremendous achievement. And going back all those years and onto that international stage, is, is this part of the story now around uh, Indigenous cause in this country, that it, it's not alone, it is joined by that argument in many other places? Other places around the world? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that Australia doesn't have any treaties as a, a colonised country with no treaties is a big part of that. And I feel very fortunate that at that young age I was taken into that international environment and I'm also fortunate since through working at Monash Uni and Melbourne to be at international conferences. And it, there's something that unites everyone when you're in the room together because of that common thread, I suppose, where rights need to be protected because of what colonisation has done. I wonder how much in this country black Australians say treaty and white Australians say reconciliation. Well, reconciliation's a bit easier, isn't it? Mm. It's softer and it translates more easily to the masses because what we've learned as a... or what we've created as a society around reconciliation, which is easy to touch, are things like flying the flag... Important things, acknowledging the place that we're at, having morning tea, things like that are accessible and not too difficult to arrange and bring people to. But I think we need more than just 
reconciliation and that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the book or one of the things I reflected on which is growing up as a Catholic and learning what reconciliation is in that context. Tell, tell us about that because that's, that informs this beautifully. Well, I suppose I was in about grade four and at school we were told we were going to make our reconciliation, which is, of course, learning how to confess to the priest. It's another word for confession. So that's the first time I heard that word was in the context of being at a Catholic primary school and having to learn how do you go into the room and you're there by yourself and you've got to tell the priest your sins. You were such a good girl, you had to make stuff up. I had to make stuff up, yeah. My mum's here, she'll <laughs> confirm that. <laughs> but they do, they teach you, you know, to, um, yeah, reflect and think about the things that you've done. You know, maybe you said a bad word or maybe you were mean to your brother or that kind of thing. There's an obvious metaphor in that for the thinking that should be going on within colonial Australia. Mm. I wonder, in, I mean, to extend the religious idea there, how many white Australians look at uh, reconciliation as, as sort of a, an act of absolution rather than an act of contrition. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you learn about confession as a child, you're learning that you must go in there and tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, everything will be fine. You know, God will forgive and you'll be absolved. But I think what's happened with reconciliation in some ways is there's a view that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people need to do more work in order to adjust themselves to fit into what comfort society has created for themselves instead of non-Indigenous people doing the work to face up to the truth of our history but also our present. There's an element of, of almost sort of assimilation thinking in that. Definitely. Mm. And that's not to say that the work that my family members or indeed the work of the people at Reconciliation Australia now isn't in vain. Uh, they do good work. But that can't be, reconciliation can't be the only thing. Because if we think about the international context in South Africa and Canada, when they went through reconciliation processes, they purposely included the word truth, whereas Australia didn't. Mm. They had truth and reconciliation commissions. We didn't use the word truth. In that 30 years that you've referenced there, I mean, you know, m much has happened under that, that rubric of reconciliation. I mean, the, the recognition of country that we had at the beginning of this conversation, the, the fact that on the, if, if this was on ABC News tonight, there would be a super that would say Wurundjeri country. Mm, mm. And those things aren't to be underestimated, but the, I, I get the feeling that, that colonial Australia is sort of running out of, of gesture. It's running out of the low-hanging fruit. Mm. And that pushes the conversation to a very a tricky place for, yeah. for colonial Australians. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Uruk Justice Commission here in Victoria is so important. The work that those elders and others are doing at the moment toward treaties and truth-telling is really important because that's the next phase that the community and our whole society, our whole nation needs to move into is we've, we've had 20 or 30 years of understanding what reconciliation can be and now we need to be courageous and go into the next phase and that takes courageous leaders. I thought of some other R words and I, I wrote them down. Reparation, yeah. uh, repatriation, recognition, respect. That, that's kind of 
where, where it begins to go, isn't it, after reconciliation? Yeah, well, all fruitful relationships begin with respect. So if there isn't respect, you're in trouble from the start. I mean, reparations, I think, are incredibly important and there is a, a First Nations reparations process here in Victoria now, which is hopefully the, the catalyst for other jurisdictions to follow. The fact that... And, and Victoria is not the only state or... or governmental organisation within the country pursuing mm. some sort of treaty mm. process. And that's that's tremendously significant. And perhaps perhaps that shows the way. I I wonder if, if the, the, the truth-telling component of that... I was going to say limitation, but is there something about a truth process that's sponsored by the colonial state that is perhaps problematic? It is unless you get the leadership right. Like a Prime Minister or anyone else who's a public-facing leader, they have to show courage to bring people on board and bring everyone along. So if we don't have that from the colonial project, it'll be much more difficult. But I think many parts of Australia are too comfortable and don't want to have to face truths, whether they're historic or current, because there's an idea or a perception that that will disrupt their own lives in some way. But you can't heal as a nation without the truth. And giving you, you know, exposing yourself to that, that vulnerability that your life may yeah. be affected by that truth. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, we saw that, I reflected on it in the book around when Hawke was Prime Minister and there were all these scare campaigns on the TV about what Native Title would do. You know, you're going to lose your home, you're going to lose your farm, you're going to... Western Australia had a, a disgusting you know, campaign on, on TV and through their media around everything that was wrong with forming treaties. And I have to believe that we've passed that, that... The attitudes that existed and that were nurtured by the media 30 years ago and that's why I think reconciliation is an ongoing thing. It's not one particular destination. It has to be decided upon by the society and the generation of the time. What are we willing to accept as social justice? The other thing that's sort of shifted, I think, in this conversation is the, the thinking within... Indigenous communities within First Nations people, that, that sense of, of sort of intellectual conversation within that group, for that group, of that group, and the, and the sense that it no longer needs to be taken outside of the group, that there is an important act to be undertaken purely within black Australia. Yeah, and I think it's always been there. It's now more visible or audible. Sort of aggressively stated now, I think. It's, it's well, not aggressively stated, it's sort of... Robustly, owned. proudly. I'm yes. thinking of Chelsea Wadigo, for example. Absolutely. As an example of someone leading in this area. Yeah, and I think social media is terrific in this aspect because it's accessible and people can put their views out there and engage in conversation in Twitter, for example, or, or however other way. And one of the big things in that conversation is, is this notion of being sovereign people. Hmm. Tell us about that. I mean, explain the nuance of, of that as, a, as, a, as an idea. It can be embodied or translated differently from person to person or family to family and community to community. But 
it's part of the truth telling that it's not the the sovereignty of the crown even if people choose to recognize that isn't superior to aboriginal and torres strait islander sovereignty and it talks to the reality of what happened when this country was invaded and that it was it was done so with the purpose to eliminate the people that were here so Talking about sovereignty and listening to First Nations people interpret it is really important because it, it directly speaks to the truth of the country. And it strikes me as something really important in this moment of inching towards a conversation around treaty, that treaty can't be just an act of munificence from the colonial authority. Treaty has that's to be right. a thing negotiated between yes. two sovereign entities. Yes. So that's another tricky thing because there are many nations... There's not just one, one Aboriginal nation. There's there's hundreds. So how do we work? That how out? do we work <laughs> that out? You know, a treaty with the Aru people might be different to a treaty with Wurundjeri people, and it, and rightly so because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are diverse and always have been, and that goes all the way through everything in our being, from you know familial relations and customs and artwork and expression and law and culture, it's so diverse. So how do we honour that in a treaty process? I don't have all the answers, but it's it's a tricky one. I mean, possibly by ha- having a, um, a an agreement on certain rights and possibilities that are attained to all people of... Mm in First Nations Australia, regardless of their specific grouping. Yes, and one of the challenges in Australia, of course, or any other place, is the political boundaries. For example, New South Wales and Victoria, you've got the river as the boundary in terms of your jurisdiction, but you have Aboriginal nations that overlap those boundaries. So if you're part of one nation, but some of the family lives in New South Wales and some of the family lives in Victoria, how do you resolve what the treaty making is in the colonial way of looking at the world. How, how does that, that multiplicity within Indigenous Australia work out in that conversation we referred to before on that, that, that sense of, of Indigenous sovereignness? The multiplicity of views, the, the huge range of peoples that are involved in that conversation, that it, it can't... I mean, it must, surely, I mean, and tell us about this. It, it must be riven with its own set of... Factionalisms and, and and warring camps of thought. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, complex. You know, I've always lived in Victoria. I was born here in in Nam in Melbourne and grew up down in Gunditjmara country in Port Ferry. So I'm a guest here. So when it comes to negotiating a treaty with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who live in Victoria, I don't know how much that treaty applies to me as a Victorian because this is not my country. My country is in the Kimberley. So when there's treaties negotiated in Western Australia and with Kimberley people, I don't live there. So there are levels of authority that I have and I don't have. There's authority that my nieces and nephews or grandchildren might have that I don't have because I wasn't born there, I didn't grow up there. I'm connected to it but... So there's lots of complexities around that, for example, but also, importantly, not 
every Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person agrees with everything. Every, Kills the free. Right? People and people. everyone is having different experiences of the world. And in writing my reflections and my story, it's important for me to say that I'm not speaking for the whole mob. I'm not speaking for everybody. It's only my, my experience and I acknowledge that others are having a completely different experience of the world and I've got privilege that I carry with me that is important to acknowledge too. You know, I'm not, I'm not followed around a shop with suspicion because of the colour of my skin, whereas other First Nations people are and that's not okay. So my experience of the world is one of privilege and that's also why it was important for me to talk about my paternal grandparents at the beginning and their experience in the 40s. I want to come to some of that, but before that, I mean, that, that thing of, of the great difference within Indigenous Australia, that, that speaks to the, the magnificence of the achievement of the Uluru Statement. Yeah. That that could bring together so many people into a, a, a particular mm. piece of text. And not everyone agrees with what the Uluru Statement is asking, and that's okay. And some people believe that the three offerings of the statement, which are voice, treaty and truth, are in the wrong order. Lydia Thorpe, has, Greens senator, has talked about it, that truth needs to come first before... So there's complexities in that as well. And some people, you know, have, have a, a bigger view that the Uluru Statement, we don't need that. We need our sovereignty to be recognised. So some people believe in a different process around that. So it is hard because, you know, a whole lot of people gathered together at Uluru to, to work through that and get it all down on that canvas and um, articulated, but not everyone is on board with it. And I guess there's a lot in the, a lot in the process that sort of pushes in Indigenous Australia into the position of having to consolidate something, mm. having to, you know, come up with a single idea. Simplify. Simplify. Yeah, because yeah. it's too hard and too much work to, you know, <laughs> dig into the complexity sometimes. How tricky is it too that, um, you know, white Australia is no longer just colonial Australia. There are people in this place now, in fact, it's getting towards the point where the, the people who could be described as descendants of, of colonial people here are almost in the minority. Mm. Maybe that's a bit extreme. But, yeah. but you know, the, the, there are shifting tides of demography where yep. there are many people here who are not Indigenous Australians and yet by no stretch have a, a, a direct association with the colonial history in that mm. place. How much does that complicate the negotiation? It does complicate things because if... And I've heard Arnie Marcia Langton say something like this some time ago. I think it was around the time when the native title legislation was being developed and negotiated, which was, if we don't do it now, the population of Australia will change over the coming 20 and 30 and 50 years to a point where First Nations people will be pushed into a further minority and the multiculturalism of Australia will be so diverse that I think what she was trying to say was we can't lose this opportunity now because we can see the way in which Australia is going to grow. So I think it's really important for people who are 
choosing to live in Australia from another country or they're arriving here because of other reasons, that they're afforded the courtesy of learning and being given the opportunity to understand where they're arriving and where they're settling. I would want the same if my family was moving to another country. Because Australia is a colonised country, everyone has a responsibility, regardless of where they're from, to acknowledge that and place themselves within it. That does add impetus, doesn't it? That, that does have a sense of a need to do things before what Marshall Langton suggests is going to happen. But something like... And, 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 and just listening to you there, I mean, it, it, all these roads lead back to this notion of truth, I think. Mm. That, that's the, the, the kernel of all these ideas. Mm. And that's such a... I mean, it's a difficult conversation from both sides of the ledger, a difficult conversation from uh, Indigenous Australians having faith in process and faith that telling their truth will be respected and, and white Australians with... I think even Tony Abbott described this as sort of a hole in the national heart. Mm. It's this absence in our, our psychological sense of ourselves as a country of, of just denying mm. who we are. Yeah. So it's difficult from both sides. So that's not a process which is going to be done in 18 months. No. No, it's going to take generations and the whole nation has to be committed to that. And, again, going back to the leadership that we have, and I'm not saying that any one party is perfect, but if you don't see courage from your leaders, then change won't happen. I think Keating showed courage when he made the Redfern speech. I don't really think we've had a leader as courageous since when it comes to our business. You write, and this is a I mean, difficult and touching and, and, and sort of wonderful part of your book about your, your own crisis of identity. It's got a lot to do with dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder, am I black enough is the question you yeah. ask yourself. Yeah, and Anita Heiss wrote, Am I Black Enough? Um, so I commend that book to everyone as well. But, yeah, I was at uni and I loved going to uni and dancing, you know, 20, 30 hours a week and learning everything I could about that craft. Your first degree was in Yeah, it was in, in drama and yeah. contemporary dance. And I loved it. And, yeah, one of my classmates, when they inquired about my name, because it's not an Anglo name, and I said I was Aboriginal... I was used to it by then, that sort of look, a little look of distaste that what was I doing there and why wouldn't I be in Sydney with Bangara? And I'd never heard of Bangara. This was 1996. And I was embarrassed that I'd never heard about it. And, yeah, they said, you should, shouldn't you or people do <laughs> be doing that? But, of course, I wanted to learn everything about, you know, the world of the stage and performing and... Stanislavski and Martha Graham and all these amazing things that were brought to us when I was studying. So I hadn't spent that much time in Sydney as a young person. I'd been there a few times. Dad was living there when he was working at the commission. But, you know, family holidays are family holidays. So I didn't know about the black performing arts community in Sydney and just the amazing things that they were doing. And so then I discovered Bangara were running auditions and that was when I felt very deeply, not that I wasn't Aboriginal enough, but that I wasn't black enough to go and try and, and audition for that. 
And I eventually saw them perform in Sydney, I think it was 97 or 98. And I, it was, I loved it. It was just stunning. And because I was in the midst of, you know, learning my craft as a dancer, I didn't hesitate that I'd be able to keep up with them on stage, like watching their technique and watching the way they moved. I thought, I can do that, but I don't belong there because I felt I hadn't been handed a torch. I hadn't been given some authority to express that part of my culture. So I just carried on thinking, well, that other mob will do that and I'll do something else. How did it feel to, to find yourself? Settling, I suppose. I don't really know because it, it wasn't one moment. I suppose like everyone, it's a accumulation of experiences till you get to a point where you feel solid in yourself. And it's not that at that time I didn't feel solid in my identity as an Aboriginal young person. There were just other layers that I thought I couldn't go into. Does that make sense? Because that is a bit of a conversation from what I glean in First Nations Australia. Uh, there is a bit of a are you black enough camp? Yeah. Which is a tricky thing. And, you know, I'm thankful for both sides of my family who always reinforced that I am Aboriginal as well as the other parts to our family heritage, the Irish and the German. They're all important parts to who I am. But it is important in a colonised country. I wasn't born in Germany. I wasn't born in Ireland. I was born here. And, you know, we all have a right to identify how we choose. And so... Yeah, I always felt comfortable enough. And it and I think it's a thing when you don't have an anglicised name, an Anglo name. Yeah. Because people inquire, where's your name from? And I never hesitated. I always felt proud to say my name and say that I was Aboriginal. It can be a thing for some people. And if it is, if, if people want to hang on to that, then that's for them. Well, it's an, one of the interesting things about the census just released was the rise in people identifying as Indigenous mm. Australians, something like a 25% increase in, yeah. the, in the total number. What's going on there? Is that people feeling free to, to make that claim? It could be a combination of people feeling free to identify. It could be people experiencing a deathbed confession when, you know, Nan or Uncle or someone's towards the end of their life and they say, oh, by the way your great-great-grandmother was Aboriginal. Or it could be, and I hope it's not, but I did read a couple of articles about a, a speculation, I suppose, that non-Aboriginal people were ticking the box thinking that they were helping by raising the numbers so that more services and more funding would be put in. That's a problem. So at the university, for example, where I work, if a, young, if a person comes through our doors and says, hi, I'm Aboriginal... I'm here to... I'm a student and I... We accept them for who they are, for who they say they are. The complexity when you work in a big white organisation and you're receiving Commonwealth money to run your program is that we're responsible for acquitting that funding and adhering to the guidelines, which are that the students that we service fit into the three-part definition. The Commonwealth has a three-part definition and it may not be perfect, but that's what we go with, which is that you are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage, 
you identify as such and you are accepted as that in the community in which you live or have lived. And that can be really challenging because any mob who are here know that there's a whole process of trying to obtain community confirmation that the community claims you and says that, yes, you are who you say you are. Not every Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person can get that confirmation because of politics. So not everyone can just go to their local land council and talk to the chair of the board and say, can I get my confirmation note? Because that person might be at war with uncle and mum doesn't like, you know, there could be politics within the community which makes it hard for people, especially young people who might be their first interaction with a university and the first time they've ever been asked to provide documentation that says who they are. So it's really challenging because we are not the ones... It's not our role to affirm someone's identity, but because of the colonial construct we're in, we need to affirm that they're eligible for the services that they're seeking. But importantly, that ultimate confirmation is a matter for community. Exactly. Not, not for Andrew Bolt or Correct. whomsoever else. It's a matter for community. <laughs> and it's not so much which community you claim, it's which community claims you. Hmm. Does that make sense? It's about yes, the, yes. the community that says, yes, you're part of us. So going back to the census and how people identify, if someone discovers that they've got Aboriginal heritage in their family, that's wonderful. But you can't rock up to us and say, what scholarships can I get? What we would say is you are now on a journey of finding your family heritage and we can connect you with people that will help with that. Yeah. But it doesn't just mean that all of a sudden you're a black fella now and, you you know, you've got to do the work. And that can be really hard to... ..that can be really hard to navigate. When this process works through, this, this process, as you say, it, it, it's generations in, in, in truth-telling, in, in treaty and all the other things that need to be done... Where do we get to? Justice. What's the place? But what's the place you can imagine that this place is at the end of that? It's a place where everyone belongs and everyone feels that they belong and it's a place where no one has to conceal or hide who they are because there's a safety. Yeah, there's a safety. Do settler Australians actually belong here? How do they make how do they make that good? Oh, jeez, Jonathan, I don't know. <laughs> um, look, I think the complexity is that because this continent is home to so many diverse nations, it's for those nations to say who belongs here. So Wurundjeri people can say who they want to say belongs here. That's made more difficult because it's 2022 and we're part of the Commonwealth and we have a colonial project happening right now. So in terms of who belongs here, I don't have the answer, so I would defer to the traditional owners of the land that I'm on. But I've been always told that I'm a guest here and that I'm welcome here, I was born here. And, and I think that, I mean, so much of, of those aspects of your culture 
the way that my culture is is finally realising it needs to move to save itself or to save yeah. all of ourselves. Yeah, we do need to move to save ourselves. That's a good way to put it. You should write a book, Jonathan. <laughs> you're a bit busy, aren't you? <laughs> I might, you know. No, but I think you're right. Another We're, one. We can't remain stagnant. And, you know, if I think about stories that I've been told of how my grandparents' rights were... Um, taken from them, and even my dad in the seventies and eighties, you refused re, you refused service at a bar. You know, after work, he's wearing his lawyer's wig and robe, refused service, and I've I've never been refused service anywhere. That's the so other that's, R word, of course, that we haven't mentioned, which is <laughs> racism. Yes, yeah, mm. we might need a whole other night to talk that, that through. Yeah. <laughs> several conversations. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callion. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.